I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. Here we are reminded of a very familiar story. If one you're not familiar with, I encourage you to become familiar with it. It is one of the more, among the most pivotal moments in human history. It is the event in which mankind was thrust into an estate of sin and misery. And here, we'll give particular attention to Eve's deception by the serpent, an incident that Paul will discuss in his letter to Corinth. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a New Testament reading in our sermon text this morning. Here, Paul continues his attack on the false teachers that have infiltrated the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, well, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For those brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. What I am doing, I will continue to do. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms that we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider the seriousness of the troubles plaguing Corinth, that you would give us discerning hearts, uh, that we would hear all uh, of the promises that you give your church, but also the warnings that you send to us that we might be safe and kept through wisdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm certain uh, many of you are familiar with the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Here is the story of the little girl who goes over the river and through the woods to visit Grandma. What she doesn't know is that Grandma, of course, has been eaten by the big bad wolf. And the big bad wolf is dressed up as Grandma to deceive Little Red Riding Hood so that he can eat her too. It's a story that many of us are familiar with, and I think it raises two important questions. The first is how is it that her grandma could be so ugly that she could be confused for a wolf in a dress? But the more pressing matter so how do you discern between your own caregiver and a wolf in disguise? See, at least Little Red Riding Hood had uh, an, an ounce of discernment to say, huh, Grandma, well, your teeth are a little bit bigger than I saw you last time. Grandma, what big eyes you have. However, Corinth, when it comes to wolves in disguise, 
are completely oblivious. They are worse off than Little Red Riding Hood. They've been totally duped, just like Eve in the garden. So Paul continues his work of spiritual warfare. The work that has begun since the beginning of chapter 10 as he uncovers these wolves or what he calls the super apostles, rather sarcastically. These men who have infiltrated the church and he will not stop until they are exposed for the frauds that they are. So we need to consider, I think, three things this morning in this passage. First, we'll consider the matter of deception. See that in verses 1 to 6. Secondly, we'll consider the matter of extortion in verses 7 to 11. And finally, the matter of corruption in verses 12 to 15. So deception, extortion, and corruption. And then, of course, we'll consider the significance that it has for the church of Christ today. Well, Paul begins here by saying, please bear with me. Please put up with my foolish shenanigans. I'm raging as a jealous lover. Perhaps more pointedly, Paul describes himself as that protective matchmaker. I would imagine the scenario that you uh, here in the church, the ladies in the church decide to set up either David or Yojimbo with a pretty gal that you know. It's the perfect match. Things go well. The wedding date is set. But Friday night rolls around and with your, you are with your family. You go to the spaghetti factory for dinner. And what do you find at the bar? You find David or Jim's Jim, James's fiance, sitting at the bar, and the town degenerate has walked up and has begun hitting on her at the bar. And rather than spurning his advances, she doesn't necessarily flirt back, but she begins to giggle at his jokes. She begins to twirl her hair. You immediately go into defensive mode. It's more maddening as you see that she is not rejecting or spurning this philanderer's advances right away. Well, this is Paul with respect to Corinth. Paul says, don't you see what's happening? You are already engaged to somebody else. My job is to be your big brother, as it were, to keep you pure for that big and wonderful day, the great day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet, by your actions, you are on the cusp of throwing it all away, and you are oblivious to the seduction that is taking place right before you. Just like even the garden. So we heard the story just a few moments ago, Satan the great seducer, a man, or, 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 or a, a fallen angel who is so seductive that even as a serpent, he is able to come and speak uh, seductive words such that Eve is oblivious to the fact that there is a talking snake right in front of her. Satan does not walk up right away to even go, hey, you know what? You know what today's a good day to do? Let's rebel against God. Something that uh, up front would, of course, be easily repelled, but that is not Satan's method for causing Eve to stumble and fall. Rather, as Genesis 3.1 begins here, no, the serpent is much more crafty than that. He is here to entrap Eve. And he does so by causing her to doubt the authority of God's word. What did God really say? 
And he asks her, what is it? Did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, that wasn't what God's command was. There was a prohibition against one tree in the garden. But he begins to unravel and find the chink in her armor, her her lack of the knowledge of God's command to her given through her husband, Adam. Of course, what's Eve's response? It's not simply that the Lord has commanded us not to eat of the one tree in the garden. No, she adds to it. We can't eat of it, nor shall we touch it. It shows that she is not as up to par on um, God's commands as she should be. And so she is led astray. She is deceived by uh, a devilish deception. Just like little Red Riding Hood. You think that talking uh, to a snake would be the dead ringer for a bad idea. You read older Jewish commentators, and they seem to think the same thing. In fact, older Jewish commentators thought that perhaps this crafty serpent disguised himself in some way. Purely speculative, but it is uh, a, a recognition that there is something massively deceptive. There is something intoxicating that is going on here in the passage. And Paul sees the very same concept at work taking place with the church of Corinth. The big bad wolf has come to seduce you. He has come to seduce you that he might devour you. Consider how Corinth has been seduced. Three particular ways you see in verse 4. Another Jesus is being preached, not the one that we proclaimed. Another spirit, I think it's best to understand that as a capital S. A different spirit is being received. You're not being, uh, uh, it's, it's not the Holy Spirit, I should say, capital S. You're receiving another spirit, small s than the one that has been gifted to you. In fact, it is a different gospel that is being tolerated, not the one that was initially proclaimed to you. Corinth has fallen into the same trap as the church of Galatia years earlier. Paul says says in unambiguous terms, you have tolerated another gospel. It's the same language he uses there in verse 1. He says, please bear with me. Please tolerate me. Why? Because you're putting up, you're tolerating a false gospel. You're giggling and twirling your hair at a wolf with swagger and a tux. So please bear with me in my madness, the very things that you are doing. You've put up with false teaching. You do not even seem to have a problem with it. You laugh and you joke and you giggle and you receive these very things that run contrary to the foundation of the very things that you have been taught. So you could feel Paul's anger, his exasperation pulsing through the latter third of this letter. Even as the sarcasm is dripping, in verse 5 he mockingly calls them these super-apostles. We need to recognize he is not talking about Peter, James, or John here or any of the original apostles. If you notice, here are uh, men who are preaching a false Christ and a false gospel, as we see in verse 4. So Paul is not referencing uh, the original trio. You know, he's not talking about Paul, James, and John. He is talking about a different group of men, a men, who are, men who are not authorized, men who are preaching a different Christ. 
Men who are preaching a different gospel. Men who are bestowing a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. And yet he mockingly refers to them as the super apostles. You think that they're all big and bad. They're so high and mighty. And this is why Paul says, look, listen. I am not inferior to these men. Now you get why Paul is saying, please bear with me in my foolishness. Paul is having to boast, as it were, on things that he does not want to boast about, but he has to tell them. You're looking at these celebrity preachers as if they are the best thing since sliced bread, and here is Paul, who isn't the best at public speaking, and he says, I might be inferior to them in terms of rhetoric, but I am not inferior to them in terms of knowledge. I know what they are up to. And I'm here to make it plain to you that they are here to devour you and eat you whole. They might be debonair, they might be suave, they are better skilled in oratory than me, that's admittedly so, but I am no idiot. And I've spent this letter trying to show you that. So here, Paul distinguishes himself as a true apostle apostle, over and against these so-called super apostles. And he does so by targeting one of their apparent criticisms that they have leveled against him, that of Paul's paycheck. You'll see that here in verses 7 to 11. We have to recognize that in the ancient world, teachers made their money by taking on students and charging them. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Everybody has to earn their keep in some way or another. And Paul is not criticizing the fact that churches support their ministers. In fact, Paul will talk about the laborer being worthy of his wages, and even in this passage, that other churches continue to support him, particularly the poor churches uh, in Macedonia, such as Colossae, such as Thessalonica, uh, and Berea. Yet with respect to Corinth, Paul has decided not to receive any payment from them. We have to stop and we have to ask ourselves why. When you read Acts chapter 18, we are told that when Paul comes to Corinth, he continues his bivocational work as a tent maker. He stays with a tent making guild to support himself. Here, Paul speaks about how he's receiving some financial support from other poor churches in other areas to continue supporting him in his labors. But why not Corinth? If you recall what we saw in the first four chapters, there are those whispers that Paul is preaching to align his own pockets. That's what Paul says, we have, chapter 4, we have preached the word to you in simplicity and truth, not in evil underhanded ways, not for money. Paul recognizes that his own opponents are telling and whispering lies that Paul is simply in it for the big bucks. So Paul, to ensure that the church does not um, look at him with a stink eye, it's, it's an apologetic motive, as it were. He's here defending the gospel ministry. He says, okay, if you think that I'm here to make a quick buck off of you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to take any of your money so that you know that what I'm saying is because I love you. So now Paul speaks in exaggerated terms. Verse 8, I have plundered, I have robbed other churches. 
Here is an apostle that is essentially working part-time at Cabela's just to make ends meet. How humiliating that would be in a city that values rhetoric and public speaking. Here is a guy who's the so-called apostle of Christ, and yet he has to make a living as a tent maker. Here's an apostle working for REI. How humiliating, even compared to those who are making the big bucks on the conference circuit. So Paul asked, verse 7, you need to ask yourselves, church, why did I do that? Why have I humiliated myself and exalted you? Notice those categories of humiliation and exaltation. Here, Paul continues to understand the person and work of Christ as shaping his own ministry, that this is a ministry The apostolic ministry is a ministry of humiliation for the service that those around him might be exalted. Paul asks, why have I accepted the support of other churches so that you don't have to? This is not a poor congregation. He is not refusing payment from Corinth because this is a a low-income church. Uh, Corinth was established as uh, as really the, the place where you can come to carve out a living for yourself. Where other towns are full of old money, this is the place where, where the, uh, the entrepreneurs can come and make a name for themselves. Paul speaks of the wealth that Corinth already has in his previous letter. So it's not simply because he wants to make sure that they're uh, able to put food on the table. That's not the issue. Here's the equivalent of a minister serving in the financial district of Chicago, yet he's receiving his paycheck from churches in Haiti. Those poor churches in Macedonia. You think of chapters 8 and 9 where Paul talks about the example of the Macedonian churches. How they didn't have anything and they're like the widow with the two mites. But what little they have, they gave with joy and abundance to ensure that Paul is able to labor on. And Paul says, I've taken that and I've taken nothing from you so that you know I am not here to take your money. I am not a snake oil salesman, but I can tell you who is. I can tell you who are. It's these false apostles. So Paul says, I'm not here to burden you. I'm here to serve you. Why? Because I love you. And this is a policy I'm to continue to keep. He not only says, this is what I have done. He says, I will continue to do this. You're not going to change my mind on this. I will not take a dime from you, O Corinth. The only money that we'll be receiving is that diaconal collection for the poor in Jerusalem, which other men have been appointed to take care of and to bring to Jerusalem. If you recall from chapters 8 and 9, Paul has no contact with the financial contribution that Corinth itself is even giving. Paul says, I'm doing this that the gospel might spread unhindered. So I will not let these super apostles silence my ministry here in Achaia. Achaia is the name of that region, that peninsula where Corinth is located. Paul says, you're being seduced by another and you do not even realize it. And so it leads to this third point, the matter of corruption you see here in verses 12 to 15. So you see Paul here going on the war path against these super apostles. So I'll continue refusing money from you to undermine, this is the purpose, to undermine their claims that I am in this to extort money from you. I'm here to undermine their lies. 
They claim to be working on the same terms as me, as if we are both apostles. That is a bald-faced lie, and I'm here to expose their misdeeds and their misconduct. They claim that they're apostles. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're demons, servants of darkness, dressed as ministers of light. That language here of undermine, quite literally, to cut them down, it's the, it's the same word that John the Baptist uses against the Pharisees when he says the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Bear fruit unto repentance and godliness. If not, the only value that you have is to be cut down and cast into the fire. Jesus says the exact same thing in his ministry, and Paul uses this same language of divine judgment against these false teachers. Every fruitless tree will be cut down. What is it that the super apostles are claiming? Again, they claim, verse 12, to be working on the same terms as Paul. That they are somehow equals. That they are preaching the same gospel when in fact they are preaching two very different gospels. Notice this, in verse 5, Paul calls them super apostles. If you didn't pick up on the sarcasm, here in verse 13, Paul makes it much more clear. He now says they are pseudo-apostles, false apostles, charlatans. They are imposters, intentionally pretending to be something that they are not. These are not simply decent guys who need to get their act together, that need to shore up their catechism a little bit better. This is the big bad wolf who has devoured grandma and is dressed up in her nightgown. And, she, and, and he is here to devour you as well. Deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Jesus uses the language of hirelings in John chapter 10. That's what these are. Verse 14, if Paul uh, uh, you know, hasn't been um, subtle enough Paul now says they are servants of Satan. It's very unambiguous language. These are not simply erring brothers. These are agents of the enemy of darkness. They do the very same thing that Satan has done ever since the garden. They pretend to be something that they are not. They look like an angel of light, but they're the devil in disguise. Satan, his servants, they look like apostles, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Their end will correspond with their deeds, those things that they are doing now in the church. Again, Paul will continue this act of spiritual warfare against the false teachers. We need to remember, what is spiritual warfare? Chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, where he first began the section, that spiritual warfare is seen... Not in terms of a, uh, a baptized voodoo or t- some type of spiritual mumbo-jumbo, but in taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To take what is being taught and saying, all right, let's subject this to the teaching of Scripture. Beware of false teachers. It is a warning that you will see in every book of the New Testament. And Corinth is in the death grip of false teaching. The question is, will they survive? 
When I did my internship uh, about six years ago, as a dear friend of mine who became an elder there once told me about the task of what a ruling elder is called to do. He says an elder is to do two things. He is to feed the sheep and he is to hunt the wolves. And the New Testament warning that we find before us, a warning uh, that becomes much more sobering as we barrel closer and closer to the last day, is that wolves will continue to infiltrate the church of Christ. It is, in fact, a sign that the end gets closer and closer and closer. That men will want to have their ears tickled with words that bring them uh, worldly comfort. And that sets the stage for false teachers to come to, to preach these, these messages of peace where there is no peace. Uh, these messages of worldly prosperity, these messages that uh, you uh, can become right with God uh, simply by trying harder, or that you don't have to do anything at all to be made right with God. Contrary to the gospel that was received once for all, handed down to the saints, what is required? Repentance and faith. To turn from our sin and to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ And that one is justified not by our own righteous works, but by faith alone. And so wolves continue to try to infiltrate every congregation. It is a stark reality. This is why the elders are given and appointed and installed for the church to be defenders of the church of Christ so a faithful minister and a faithful elder must be vigilant to protect the sheep from all harm, especially when the sheep don't know that they are sitting on the brink. So I think there are three principles we can appropriate from this portion of Paul's letter. Paul does not end this portion of his letter on a particularly happy note, but we have to stop and consider what does this mean for us here at Westminster Well, I think the first thing we need to consider is this, is that pastors and elders are called to be vigilant against false teachers. Not just false teaching. Here Paul actually confronts the particular individuals who are disseminating false doctrine. Going against those who intentionally attempt to deceive the flock and undermine faithful gospel ministry. And of course, there's a, a manner in which that is to be done, as Paul has talked about, else, talked about elsewhere. But we see here that Paul has taken the gloves off, as it were. He, that's why he says, please bear with me in my foolishness. I have to speak bluntly right now because you're so close to being devoured. We're reminded that the goal of the ministry is simply this. The proclamation of Christ crucified and raised the necessity of repentance and faith, the full pardon of sin without qualification, pardon that is received through faith alone, and the call to a life of holiness and godliness in humility, gentleness, and patience. See, our task is to see you look like Christ, just as Paul's task with the church of Corinth was to present them as that pure bride, the pure virgin on her wedding day to the Lord Jesus Christ, so also is our task to see you made holy and preserved for that last day. 
to be the jealous big brother to ensure that no wolves come to seduce you. I think the second principle that we see in play in this passage is this, that a faithful ministry loves the sheep. Faithful ministry does not extort the sheep. That's the very thing that Paul's been accused of, and Paul goes to great lengths and to great pains to demonstrate, I am not doing this because, because of my love for you. And perhaps take this for what it is, but as a rule of thumb, I never trust a man or a woman who names a ministry after themselves. I don't have any particular individual in mind, but just as a rule of thumb, what's their goal? Is their goal really to proclaim Christ? Or is it simply to get you to buy their latest book or teaching product? In Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord condemns the elders of Israel because they have used their position to feed themselves. The very thing that the elders are feeding themselves upon is the sheep. The elders are said to be devouring the very ones that they're called to protect. Rather than pray for the flock, they are praying on the flock. They are devouring the innocent for personal profit and pleasure. That's when the Lord says, I myself will be the good shepherd. I will come to defend the sheep and to execute judgment against the fat. Those who have fed themselves off of the sheep. Those who have made themselves fat off of uh, the extortion of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. That's the backdrop against which we need to understand Jesus' own saying in John chapter 10 that there are other hirelings who have come, but I am the good shepherd and I will not run from the fight. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life, and he comes to do so by laying his life down for the sheep. It's very clearly not one who is in it for a quick buck. Such is the model for church officers. How often do we see in the news pastors charged with lining their own pockets for personal gain, or even more seductively using their ministry to build up their own names rather than the name of Christ? This church must be a church that proclaims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and nobody else. It's the very thing that we as a church should be known for. Not an individual persona or charismatic personality or a program, as good as programs and good teachers are, these are things that have one goal in, pl- in, in mind. As those men in the Gospel of John said when they came to Jesus, they said, sir, we, we want to see Jesus. That is the only thing that we are here to do, to show Christ, that we might look like Christ and be conformed to His image. Final principle. How do you tell a true shepherd from a wolf in disguise? one who has cloaked himself as a true teacher. Paul says it very simply here in verse 15, their end will correspond with their their deeds. Jesus says language very similarly, by their fruit you will know them. Not by their charm or their charisma, not by the number of times you see them on the celebrity conference circuit, not by the number of books that they sell, but by their fruit. What is the very thing that we spent this whole summer looking at? The fruit of the Spirit consists in godliness. 
one who has bad fruit. Bad character is a tree that will be undermined. It is one that will be cut to the root and burned. How do you tell a true shepherd from a false one? How do you tell a a, a faithful minister from a pseudo-minister? It is not by their public rhetorical speaking skills. Paul himself even says these guys are better at public speaking than me. What I suggest is not even by the amount of Bible verses they can spout out. You read church history and you find that every heretic has his proof text. It is by their fruit as it conforms to true godliness and true doctrine. Godly doctrine produces a life of godliness. Character counts more so than charisma. The grace of God more so than spiritual giftings. This is what Paul is trying to get at. What is the litmus test? The litmus test is the cross. Do not be deceived by the big, fancy neon lights that want to uh, uh, distract you and turn you away because those neon lights are nothing more uh, than the light that attracts a moth to a flame. It will destroy you. The litmus test is the cross of Christ. We have to even evaluate success according to the standards of the cross. And so when we come to look as a body when it comes time to nominate and elect new church officers to serve in this church, this is something we need to have put before our very eyes. What is the scriptural criterion for evaluating and electing and uh, nominating and electing and calling new deacons, elders, and ministers? It is this. This very question, are they bearing mature spiritual fruit of godly character? If the church's goal is that we look like Christ, then officers in the church must be men who model Christ-likeness for the glory of Christ and for his kingdom and for his sheep. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask uh, that you would uh, take this word and the warning that it gives and seal it on our hearts, make us vigilant uh, to love you above all things and to pursue truth and godliness Above all, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.